The debrief is a production of faculty at the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. The views presented here are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions of the Department of Defense or any of its components. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Debrief Podcast. I'm your co-host, Nick Gvozdev, a professor in the National Security Affairs Department. Uh, this podcast is a production of the National Security Affairs Department of the U.S. Naval War College, dedicated to looking at contemporary national security issues. I'll be joined today by Professor Kate Walsh, also of the National Security Affairs Department. We will be discussing the role of Congress. And as always, uh, in our conversations, we'll be reflecting our own personal assessments and views uh, of this question. And what we say today does not reflect any official position of the U.S. Naval War College, the U.S. Navy, or the U.S. Department of Defense. And with that, Kate, welcome to the debrief. Thank you for having me. So many of our students often prefer being in the executive branch. There's a clear chain of command uh, from the president on down. Uh, sometimes they think that Congress is something that really doesn't touch them until they turn around and realize everything from the budgets that keep us open uh, to being promoted, to the rules and regulations that we operate under, uh, even perhaps uh, at some point in their careers being called before Congress to testify. Can you give us a sense of the role that Congress plays in national security affairs? Sure. Uh, you've alluded to it already, but you know, Congress is very powerful. Article 1 uh, lays out, particularly Article 1, Section 8, lays out Congress's powers. Uh, they are powers that Congress shall have, and the word shall matters uh, in legislative terms. Uh, and those powers are numerous, um, and including the, as you know, the elastic clause uh, to make all uh, shall make all laws that are necessary and proper, uh, and that includes the power of oversight over the executive branch, for one. Um, so those are, you know, some of the top uh, level issues. But as you suggested, uh, military members, their uh, promotions uh, at a, 04 and above, I believe it is, uh, will be decided by the Senate. Um, they will be host to uh, congressional delegations, CODELs, or staff DELs, staff delegations to their combatant command or wherever they may be um, um, uh, billeted. Uh, also, uh, GAO, the General Accountability Office, does investigations and they may come to visit. And <laughs> so they're coming to investigate something uh, that Congress has tasked them to do. Um, you may get inquiries from Congress via the Office of Legislative Affairs, as you suggest, for testimony, for um, other matters that. Um, if you're a representative or a senator, your constituents have in some way gone to their representative or senator with an issue, and you'll get inquiries from a congressional office about whatever the issue is, often veterans' issues. Um, if you want uh, veterans' uh, benefits, you know, all of this comes from Congress. So basically, DOD, including all the military members, but also civilians, has nothing, no money, without Congress. Uh, so exceptional powers, and even if you don't feel it every day, they're, they're in the background. When you were speaking about money, and oftentimes the president will make a request, uh, why is it that uh, Congress just doesn't simply take the president's request and, and run with it? Can you perhaps give us a sense about the president asking for money or asking for legislation, uh, or, but what actually happens in the process and why the final 
uh, outcome may look a lot different than sure. what the president uh, initially requested. Sure. Well, the executive branch used to not even have a role uh, that Congress prior to World War One would do all of the appropriations uh, and decide what the executive branch would get. But as the U.S. government became greater and we came, became more of a global power through World War One and World War II, uh, the, the budget became so large and, and so many details that Congress actually asked the executive branch to submit a budget uh, that then they would review and conduct oversight over. And so that is the process today, that the president will submit a budget um, due uh, around the State of the Union. Um, uh, by law and submit what the president and all the departments uh, that feed into the president's budget uh, say that they need. And then Congress will start to have hearings and do oversight and decide what they agree with, what they don't agree with. Uh, and then, of course, that is supposed to wrap up by the end of the fiscal year, or uh, to be ready, sorry, at the beginning of the new fiscal year, October 1, uh, which has been challenging. But this is a back and forth throughout the calendar year between the executive branch requesting and Congress overseeing and deciding authorizing in the first case and then appropriating the monies uh, in the end. Congress has uh, a pretty wide array of issues that they have to consider and uh, members of Congress uh, can only be expert in so many issues or only going to have uh, a sense of uh, familiarity. Uh, and then this brings us to the question of staff. And I was remiss in not noting earlier that you're not only a scholar of Congress, you were a practitioner. Uh, you worked on the Hill and you worked in organizations uh, that liaise directly with Congress. Can you give us a sense of the, the role of staff? There's the member, but what about the staff? And what are their some of their functions, particularly as it relates to national security issues? Sure, sure. Uh, I'll get to the uh, professional and then personal staff in a moment, but you're, you're right, when my first entree working with Congress was as an intern <laughs> back in uh, my undergraduate days, uh, and I think in some ways where I learned the most. Um, I was working for my state senator, who was a powerful senator on the Senate Armed Services Committee at the time, uh, and so his military legislative aide, uh, who went on to become uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense in later administrations. Uh, you know, that was my uh, first understanding experience with Congress. And one of the things, two, two things I learned that are still important that I usually share with my students. One, the power of an intern, an unpaid, very junior person, first time on Capitol Hill, has the power, if given by the, delegated by the senator or member of the House, which is common, of a staffer, of the senator or the member of the um, House. And so I learned this in a practical sense, if you forgive me a quick story. Please. Um, I was working for the military legislative aide. A constituent had a question. It wasn't a typical question where a form letter might be uh, a regular uh, answer. So I had to investigate. Uh, so I called over to the Pentagon. I was instructed, call to the Pentagon, ask about this question. Uh, and this was back in the days when you actually had rotary phones. <laughs> so I called up and I said, you know, hi, this is Kate. I'm the new intern. At, at you know Senator So and So's office, and they hung up. <laughs> my one of my I think very first lessons of Washington. Okay, so I call back right away, and I said I'm calling from the office of Senator So and So, which who happens to be on the Senate Armed Services Committee. They knew, yes, ma'am. What can we do for you? So even as an unpaid summer intern, I had the power of the office, and that's something that you know trickles down, uh, particularly to the senior uh, members, but is important to understand. And in fact, uh, personal staff and then professional staff, they have an equivalent of two or three-star admiral or general officer uh, in terms of formal protocol. So beware of the staff, including the interns, uh, who are doing the work of the members in many cases. Um, and then the uh, other. Um, 
stories about uh, personal and professional staff. So personal staff are also quite young oftentimes. They're working on behalf of the member, um, including on their campaigns oftentimes. Uh, they, they'll set aside and do that, but uh, in a, you know, a political and sometimes partisan sense. A professional staff member is somebody who's typically been on the Hill longer, has worked um, with members oftentimes, and has moved to the committees. So they're staff for the committees. So they tend to be a little older, a little wiser, more experienced. Uh, and then once you're on a committee, you tend to stay with the committee, uh, sometimes even depending on whether the committee shifts um, in terms of Democrat or Republican uh, majority. Um, so you want to know who you're dealing with uh, in that sense. Um, and I've also had the experience of, of working with staff. Um, and they're, as you suggest, you know, they can't do everything. So they'll often reach out to experts um, who are consultants who are defense consultants, who are lobbyists, who are think tank people, media, you know, whoever is an expert, they'll reach out. And then they may ha ask you to testify at a hearing uh, because they want to know more, but in a public setting so that it can, um, you know, enlighten others and or perhaps serve an agenda. Um, and then there's also background briefings, which I've done for senators and staffers as well. If you're the expert, and I'm sure you've done the same, uh, they may call you into the office and say, can, you know, tell us what we need to know about this. Um, and when they're doing CODELs and staff DELs, they're reaching out and they're trying to understand themselves, the staff or the members, to understand on the ground what's happening better. Um, so there's lots of opportunities for staff uh, and the members, but particularly staff who the members lean on uh, for their expertise, often suggesting, recommending which way should the uh, senator or house representatives um, a representative go, because they can't read everything, do everything. So the staff are essential, even down to the intern. No, I think that's important uh, to, to keep in mind. I wanted to also just continue on uh, a point that you had raised about, you know, senators and members. Uh, they're trying to get more information. Uh, they're trying to understand the issues. Of course, they're all elected. They are elected to represent specific constituencies. In the, in the case of the Senate, they represent a state. In the case of a member, they're representing a, a specific district. Uh, how do, in, in your experience and what you've observed, do, do members of Congress reconcile uh, the obligations that they owe their specific constituency, um, their state, their district, uh, with a sense of national interest or a sense of uh, what's good for the country. Um, if you can give us some sense of, of it, because that is a, it is a, a give and take, and mm -hmm. there, there can be issues where something really matters, say, to the district, uh, which may not necessarily be in, in light of a kind of what someone at the national level would want. So uh, how do members reconcile that? Mm -hmm. um, well, in my experience, both having worked uh, and, and observed for a long time, uh, I think this is a dilemma. And I think it's really a personal decision, ultimately, because I think much like anyone else who's called to Washington, uh, for whatever reason, be it military service, uh, public service of some sort, or the think tank world, as you and I came uh, from, um, you know, there's some sense of public service, right? That, now, how do you achieve that? Uh, so uh, sometimes the, the rationale is, well, I have to be elected in order to do that public service. Therefore, getting reelected is number one uh, above everything. Uh, now, sometimes that can be a rationalization as well. But uh, that is in there, right? And sometimes they're at odds. Um, and they're there to represent their constituency, as you say. But sometimes issues are not just about 
being that representative purely, there are issues that can be ethical, moral, or as you say, about war and peace at the strategic level. Uh, is this a right or wrong decision? And sometimes a member will decide to go their own way and pay the cost at the election booth, or other times, well, this is what my constituents elected me to do. So I don't think there's any right answer to this. I think it's an individual decision. Uh, but generally, they're there to reflect their constituency. And if there are issues, I know, you know, if there's issues that come into an office, any office on Capitol Hill is going to be very sensitive to those inputs, whether they're, you know, in the old days, written letters or postcards to today, emails and, and other things that are digital, social media and so on. They literally count, right, what, what comes in from their constituents um, and get a sense of how passionate is it? Um, is it, you know, a campaign or is it uh, more organic than that, right? So they're trying to sense from the constituency and then make their decision. Uh, but if you had to prioritize a list of things that are important, uh, you know, which one gets number one may change on any given day. Uh, there's a lot of top issues. Uh, public service is one, re-election is another, uh, and then doing what you've been sent to do uh, is a third. And sometimes those can flip. I wanted to pick up on that point because I think that people who have not worked on the Hill don't realize how much attention is paid to the opinion of the district, whether and and keeping the phone logs, keeping the letter logs. I would assume, as you said, now digital social media uh, that uh, offices are very attuned to that, and oftentimes people don't don't realize that 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 even they think, oh, I sent something in and I didn't hear, I got a form letter, but that it is a it is a data point, and that sort of leads me to to maybe uh, bringing it back to our students um, that there are things that they don't know. Uh, about how Congress works, but to maybe put it in a, in a more direct way, um, what are it, what's the advice you'd give, particularly to to serving members of the military, to our students about pitfalls or mistakes they may make when they're interacting uh, with a CODEL or a staff DEL, or they're asked to do something uh, in relationship to a member of Congress or to the staff. Uh, can you maybe give a, uh, a checklist or, or some best practices uh, so that uh, members, our students, when they uh, leave uh, Newport or they leave whatever institution uh, they happen to be at, um, can avoid uh, rookie mistakes uh, in dealing with members, and, and just your own anecdote about being hung up on until you changed your <laughs> until you changed your intro on the phone is is very instructive. Yeah, so. well, it was a lesson in power, yeah. right? It wasn't mine. I hadn't changed, but how I represented myself and the fact that I, you have derivative power or delegated power in in Congress uh, because of small staff, because the staff relies, uh, the, the member relies on the staff so heavily. That's why. Uh, so the, the first lesson is, is never dismiss anyone yeah. who's calling or communicating from Capitol Hill because they're doing it in the name of the member, uh, even if they're an unpaid intern. So so that is mm -hmm. a, a lesson. And on I was on the good end of that one. I've been on the bad end of a lesson as well that uh, coming into government, uh, you can't just uh, communicate with Congress. <laughs> so I used to be able to uh, without checking with anyone. Now, of course, uh, there are processes in place uh, because Congress is so powerful that uh, particularly DOD, but all of government, has people specifically mm -hmm. tasked with engaging with Congress, essentially don't screw it up. Uh, for us, it's the Office of Legislative Affairs. Um, and and I, uh, even at the War College with our academic freedom, we, we have relations through them. Uh, so I don't call Capitol Hill uh, directly. I call the Office of Legislative Affairs uh, and, and they will 
communicate with the member of Congress. Um, and we go uh, to Congress, uh, to the Senate Armed Services Committee every year now with our National Security Affairs trip, uh, it, for instance. And so to set up that trip, I can call everyone else in Washington, but I can't call Congress directly. Uh, and that one I learned the hard way, but <laughs> because I, I visited a former student and, and found that that was not the formal process. But uh, so yes, dealing with Congress, OLA is your assistant and your liaison uh, likely. And there's an OLA representative at every level of command in the Pentagon, all the way down to the commands and, and, and below. Um, so, so they're the people who will help you, uh, whether it's testimony or any questions that may come. Um, and then the other, I, I reference a protocol again, uh, these uh, professional uh, and personal staff do have higher equivalents than you'd expect, mm. um, and they know that. Uh, so you want to treat them as if they're generally, you know, two or three star equivalents. Um, and if you don't do that, of course, uh, then you know the, the, the challenge can come in terms of uh, all the ways we interact with Congress, uh, and that could be undermined. So, uh, and then finally, you know, it comes down to money, right? Why is Office of Legislative Affairs there? Uh, because DOD has nothing, no money without Congress. And Congress is reaching out to you and you want to, of course, try to put your best foot forward as well as, you know, be, be honest, right? So the purpose of some of those CODELs and staff DELs is not, you know, I think the we often get this sense of, well, they're just out there having a trip or there's something else at, at play, uh, but fundamentally they're trying to get information uh, in the field, which they're not necessarily going to get in Washington. Uh, so it can be as much of a hazard potentially, but it's an opportunity as well to educate uh, members and their staff uh, who are looking for information uh, on the ground, uh, out in the field, uh, and to share with them uh, what you're doing and how you're doing it and, and you know, some of the good and the bad. Um, so, uh, you know, have that two-edged sword, that hazard, but also opportunity uh, in how you're dealing with members of Congress, because they are small uh, in terms of numbers and they have an enormous responsibility, and so those staff are essential to helping the members do that. Well, thank you very much, Kate, for this uh, overview of Congress. Uh, we could continue this conversation for, for hours. Uh, there's so many topics we could discuss, but this does give us, I think, uh, a sense of why it matters, and I hope that the takeaway uh, that the students are taking from this debrief uh, is that Congress uh, is a full-fledged participant in the national security process uh, and is part of your careers and will remain a part of your careers uh, as long as you're in service. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you.